New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The bottom line of survival depends on our relationships with others. Though the land community survived for millions of years without humans, we cannot survive without the land community. We are dependent for our day-to-day survival, our very existence, on billions of non-human others. And we are dependent in equally complex ways on one another. This is the reality that sustainable societies, and especially indigenous cultures, train themselves and their children to remember. How might we practice connection instead of isolation? How might we train our eyes to see and heart to feel our connection to all creatures, even a clump of grass? The answers to these questions will serve as the focus for our conversation today with Priscilla Stuckey. Dr. Priscilla Stuckey is a writer, book editor, scholar, and earth advocate. She teaches humanities at Prescott College and holds a Ph.D. in religious studies and feminist theory from the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. She's the author of Kissed by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature. Join us for the next hour as we explore our relationship to the natural world with our guest, Dr. Priscilla Stuckey. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to New Dimensions. Priscilla, welcome. I'm so delighted to be here today. Thank you so much. It's a delight to have you. Priscilla, you begin the book with the story of an eagle uh, near Mount Rainier, I think Lopez Island, in, in off of uh, Washington State. So tell us that story, if you would. Well, I was at a low point in my life, and um, for a little change of pace, I went up to Lopez Island to search for eagles. I was a birder, but I'd never seen an eagle. So I biked around the island. I didn't find any eagles. I had only a short time there. I sat down and thought, what if I call the eagles? So I sat down, brought to mind a picture of an eagle, and asked, is it possible for you to hear me? Can I see you? And then I continued covering the island, and uh, for a day, nothing happened, and I thought, well, this probably doesn't work. I'm on my way to the fairy island the next morning, and... I see, I'm in a car, a little convertible car, and 
I see far away on the horizon a little speck in the sky. And as the speck got closer, it became clear that it was a bald eagle. And I thought, oh, wonderful, it's going to pass right over us. And I'm thinking, over here, right here. And it came closer and closer and closer. And we stopped our car in the road, and still it approached. And when it arrived directly overhead, it turned, and it made a circle over us. And then another one, and another one, and another one. And it stayed circling over there as long as we watched, looked up and watched. And when I couldn't hold my head backward anymore to gaze upward, it turned, flapped its wings three or four times, and headed back to the spot on the horizon from where it had appeared. Had you ever called in an animal like that before? I was aware of animal communication, and I had used it to address some problems that our dog had, the dog I had at the time. But I had never tried it with a wild animal, and I'm not sure I would anymore again, because it takes a certain... Well, it calls, uh, it calls a wild animal out of its own life to come say hello to you, so there is a certain human-centeredness in that action, and I'm not, I've never done it since. What did that do for you? What did, in what way was your life informed by that moment? Well, as I said, my life was at a low point right then, and when the eagle came because I had called, it made me realize that something new was possible and it made me realize, it made me feel like I had been heard. And being heard is one of the greatest gifts one can receive, whether it's from another human being or especially from a wild creature with whom we don't usually communicate in that way. So when I felt heard, I realized that some mystery was going on in this world and I wanted to find out what. In fact, on that trip, I think you describe in your book um, that you really didn't have any money at that point, and you were at, as you talked about, a low point. And somehow you decided to take this trip to Mount Rainier, and that's where you then it led you to Lopez Island. So what made you decide to even take that trip? I think I just wanted to do something different. I was tired of being depressed and sad and frustrated with my life and working alone. And I thought, okay, let's do things just the opposite of what we've done before. And in fact, it did then shift your life in some way. Can you describe that? It did. It was a very slow process. I was already practicing a deep connection with nature. I would go out once a week, uh, spend a day in nature. That was part of my healing process. Um, and I continued doing that. But receiving the gift of the visit from the eagle, really, um, it showed me that something more was going on. And it showed me that the community of listeners is much larger than we normally think of. Right. We think of listeners as strictly human 
and you're saying that that there are even you you write about the uh, the Bougainvillea, uh maybe listening in some way. T- tell the story of of the Bougainvillea. Well, I was living in Oakland and um, Oakland, California, and we had a severe frost one December, and it killed this huge bougainvillea plant that was um, circling the kitchen windows. And so you would see a rosy light through the kitchen windows because of this bougainvillea that was there. And when the bougainvillea died in the frost, I was heartbroken. And I, you know, there was nothing to do, or so I thought. Um, I... But I did go outside. I, we had a little bird feeder stuck onto the kitchen window, and every so often I would have to go outside and refill the bird feeder. So um, when I went outside to refill it one day, I looked down at that dead stump of a bougainvillea, and it had been cut down by then, and I thought, oh, dear, that's so sad. Well, what if I would just put my hands on it, around it, just show it that I cared for it? So I did. And while I was doing that, um, an image appeared in my mind of two little shoots coming out from the stump. And I felt pretty stupid for what I was doing. This was the middle of the day in Oakland, California, and I wanted to make sure no neighbors were watching me, so I kind of furtively stood up and walked back into the house and forgot all about it until a few months passed and spring came and I had to go out and re- and pick up the bird feeder again where it had fallen on the ground and refill it. And uh, I looked down at the bougainvillea stump and there were those two shoots coming out of the stump. It was regrowing. How wonderful. I, it must have really caused your heart to just leap up. It certainly did. With joy, yes, and with being startled because this is not the way we usually think of the world as working. Mm-hmm. So uh, it really... That was another moment in which I realized that there was more mystery happening than I was used to being in touch with. And just a third one that's related somehow to this was your story of the birch tree that you had grown up with back in Ohio. Can you tell us about that birch tree? Sure. Well, that actually, the birch tree actually begins the story chronologically. Um, there was a, a weeping birch tree, cut leaf weeping birch tree, planted right outside my parents' house. And um, I used to sit under the tree when I was a teenager and read. I was a big reader. And I would sit under the tree on summer afternoons and read or maybe journal. And um, we all loved that birch tree. Um, and then I left home and I moved 2,000 miles away to California and didn't think much more about the birch tree until um, in my early 30s, I was ill with a chronic illness. And one evening, um, suddenly, one evening right after dinner, suddenly, the image of the birch tree popped into mind. And it seemed stronger somehow than just a memory of something. So I sat down on the sofa and I thought, what could be happening? And the image of the tree stayed present in my mind in a very strong way for a few minutes, and then it gradually faded. And there might have been a little of an overtone of sadness, perhaps. It was a bit of a sober moment, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. I forgot about it 
a couple of weeks later, I got a call from my brother who still lived in our hometown. And he said, and he loved the birch tree too, and he said, well, we're going to have to cut down the birch tree. It's got a disease or something. And then it made sense. Oh, I think the birch tree was coming to say goodbye. It was, it was a recognition of the relationship we had had all those years. And it made me realize that we're connected in ways we don't think of. We are connected, deeply connected with all others with whom we share our lives. And you, you encourage us to be aware of that connection. Even, even if we live in the city, there are trees around us or shrubs or something. And you encourage us to actually connect even the rocks around us. Uh, so can you say something about that? I became a birder in an urban area. So I was an urban birder for many years. There is so much life going on in cities. Um, I think the statistic now is that 80% of us are living in suburban areas. There's, there are lots of trees. There, there are lawns. There are flowers of all kinds. There are plants. And if you can slip away from the neighborhood, there are perhaps native plants in some nearby parks. And um, it is possible to get to know the place where you live and connect this way with the place where you live. It's a way of setting down roots. It's a way of recognizing the community where we are. I'm here with Priscilla Stuckey, and she's the author of Kiss by a Fox. If you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, PriscillaStuckey.com. And uh, she spells Stuckey, S-T-U-S. C-K-E-Y, PriscillaStuckey.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Priscilla Stuckey, and she's the author of Kiss by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature. Priscilla, you talk about um, and mention in your book in several places how we as human beings are, I think the phrase is used, self-decreed, exiled from, from the more-than-human uh, kind or world. And can you speak about how we have actually exiled ourselves from that world? The Western cultures have held for four or five hundred years a view that the world 
operates rather like a machine and can be treated that way. Can we, we can treat nature as objects for human use. Well, if we look around us, that view has brought us to the brink of destruction. This is a very serious error that we have made, a 500, at least 500-year-old 500 error. So when I talk about self-decreed exile, it's the idea that we're living in a machine-like place. But in fact, more recent scientists and philosophers are telling us that the world is not like a machine, it's more like a community. Nature is not commodity, nature is community. So it, it's, uh, it becomes our responsibility to figure out some better ways of living in community. And, and so we've also set up our whole economic system in that way. We have um, two kinds of systems that are kind of on the table right now, the free market system or the more um, centrally planned system. And right now here in the U.S., Congress is fighting over those two systems and they're arguing. But you suggest, and some of your research has shown, that there may be another system that we should be looking at or could be, or could be looking at. Well, the, the downside or the weakness of both of those systems is that neither one of them is relating to the rest of the world around us as subjects. The theologian and he actually called himself a geologian, uh, an earth thinker, Thomas Berry, said the world is not a collection of objects, it's a communion of subjects. And if it's a communion of subjects, then how do we interact? And this is what neither of the, the major economic systems is thinking about. How do we interact with the more-than-human world as subjects, as equal members of community, rather than trying to treat the world around us as if it was created only to serve human needs. We are part of a community. So even, even our, let's say, our um, laws of, of ownership, land ownership, is, is kind of skewed in this way. Can you talk about that? We've set up incentives for changing, modifying the land. Our, our, our property laws set up incentives for modifying the land in ways that destroy it. There are other models of land ownership. We could be talking about land ownership as land stewardship, where we become responsible for caring for the land and allowing it to live in a healthy way so that it can get passed on to the next owner in a healthy way. So what you're saying, Priscilla, is that like the way we add value to a land by actually destroying it in, in some cases, by tearing it up, by ruining the soil, by taking off mountaintops, by, by doing all sorts of things to the land, and that in our present economic system, it's adding value but is it truly, in the long run, really adding value to, to life on the planet, including human life? That's a very short-term view of value, isn't it? It's the idea that adding a building to a piece of property increases its value. Well, 
adding buildings may provide housing for uh, human beings, and at the same time, if it's not done in a good, thoughtful, mindful way of the rest of the Earth community, it can interfere with water flows, it can poison soil, and if we thought about how to live our lives within this larger community of earth beings, we would be doing, we, we would not need to make incentives that destroy the earth. Mm-hmm. I am firmly convinced we could have happy lives, economically rich, uh, rich in terms of um, uh, uh, re- re- economically rich lives. We could have economically um, we could have economically uh, uh, happy, well-to-do lives without incentives to destroy the earth. So, Priscilla, one of the ways that you talk about this in, in a very real, hands-on way, you lived in Oakland, and you lived on a hillside, a very steep hillside from what I imagine you're writing told me, and it, it near Peralta Creek, was that what, what it was called? So let's talk about Peralta Creek, because that was, you go into some detail about living by this creek. Well, there are a, a number of creeks that flow down the East Bay Hills toward the bay, and the property where I was living had one of them flowing right down the middle of the property, and we were located near the headwaters of this creek. And like most of the East Bay creeks, this was a seasonal creek, so it flowed in the wintertime during the rainy season, and it um, dried up in the summertime. And as I watched the creek and listened to the creek outside the windows and attuned myself to the seasons of the place where I was living, Um, and walked beside the creek. There was a a road, there is a road that runs parallel to the creek um, above it, so you can gaze down into this steep little canyon and see the the riverbed, the streambed. And it became clear that this creek had not been very well taken care of for a number of years. People would come and dump their trash, and uh, usually by cloak of night, we would see another set of tires show up in the creek bed or a refrigerator or what have you. And um, after I'd been living there for a couple of years, I discovered that the city of Oakland would provide some cleanup services if the neighbors would actually go down there and haul the trash out of the creek bed. So I uh, and some other neighbors ended up um, organizing a creek cleanup. And I didn't, uh, we put out the word, we organized ourselves, we had our sign-up table, but I had no idea how many people would show up. And the morning arrived, it was a morning in September, and it was foggy like mornings often are in the, in the Bay Area. And we signed in about 20 or so people at our table, and I thought, wow, this is going really well. And then I walked up or drove up to the um, part, the other part of the canyon. There was, we were sort of divided into two different work sections. And I drove along the canyon on the little road that overlooked the creek there, and I couldn't believe my eyes. 
The piles of garbage and trash were enormous. There were tires, there were refrigerators and stoves and motorcycle frames. And even more significant, when I looked down the slope toward the creek, there were dozens and dozens of people working there. We probably had more than 50 people show up to clean up the creek that day. And it was, um, it became the start of something. It became... It became a pattern, a yearly pattern, where we did a, the neighborhood did a creek cleanup, and it, it, it got us all in the habit of showing our care for this place that we enjoyed the rest of the year. Two, two things occur to me there. One is, why is it that people think to throw things into a creek bed. I it just and this happens all over the place. I've seen it many, many places where I've lived. And it, it's disheartening where people just toss things out as if they were gonna disappear and as if nobody lives there or the, can you say anything about that? Do you Yes, it is common, unfortunately, and it's um the people who do, do live nearby do feel it as a violation of their space. We didn't own that property, but we walked through there every day. We walked our dogs through there. You know, we, we would say hello to neighbors walking through there. It was a place, it was a, a, a small canyon that was um, shadowed by trees and a, just a teensy bit away from the rest of the urban noise. So we had a sense of ownership, even though we didn't physically own the land um, along the creek there. And when someone would come and dump, we felt it. The neighbors do feel it. Um, I know that there are um, trash, there are uh, garbage fees that you have to pay when you go take something to a landfill. So somebody was trying to cut corners. But they're, they're, they're just minuscule compared to to uh, the damage that's done. I mean, I've, I've recently moved and I know what those fees are and... It it just boggles my mind that people would avoid that small fee and and just damage the environment so with their dumping. I think it will take a system of education. It takes enculturating our children with a different view of nature, this view that we're a community rather than a place to dump yes. dump our trash. I agree. I agree. And one thing that you discovered and you write about that was very poignant to me, um, you said in, in, of course, you established a land trust for this creek, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but you also mentioned how the creek itself was an actor on its own behalf, that it was not just uh, the humans that were doing this. You felt that you had a partnership, an active partnership. Say, say something about that. Well, we, the neighbors at a certain point after we had been cleaning up the creek for a couple of years, realized that more was needed to protect the creek. So we formed a board and set up a land trust, a very small neighborhood-based land trust. And our goal was to actually purchase the properties next to the creek so that development would not happen along the creek. Or either purchase the property or um, acquire conservation easements, they're called, where a landowner can donate 
the right to develop in return for certain tax breaks. So we set up the land trust and then we waited. I mean, like, so how do you go about running a nonprofit, a nonprofit land trust in a small neighborhood and you start to raise money and people think you're crazy and land values at that time were running, I mean, astronomical prices. So there was very small chance that we were going to be able to fulfill this mission because of, of, of land uh, values. And I was tempted to get discouraged, and I would, would get discouraged from time to time. But every time I did, something would happen. Let's talk more about the something that would happen in just one moment. I'm here with Priscilla Stuckey, and she's the author of Kiss by a Fox. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Priscilla Stuckey, and she's the author of Kiss by a Fox. Priscilla, we were talking about the land trust and saving this creek, and you would say, and we're talking about how the creek itself actually is an actor in helping out, and you said something always happens when you think it's just an impossible task. Yes, so we would get discouraged because it seemed like an impossible task to raise all that money or even to raise enough money to keep going. And whenever we got discouraged, it seemed like some small breakthrough would happen, something that had nothing to do with our efforts. And I came to feel that the Land was helping us, the creek was helping us, that we had a partner in the land who was helping to shape the the direction that we were taking. And I didn't talk about this very much with people, so it it kind of surprised me and it it made me chuckle when um, 10 years later, I had long moved out of Oakland and another person had taken over being the president of the land trust. And they reached their goal of preserving these properties beside the creek 10 years later. And um, the president was interviewed on Bay Area television, and he said, you know, I kind of think the creek wanted to be preserved. He said, in some of the breaks we had, I chuckled because it seemed like to him also, um, there was something larger going on than just human efforts. Priscilla, when you uh, talk about this, I'm reminded of, we years ago we did an interview with the poet and writer and scholar uh, Gary Snyder, and you mention him also in your book. And I remember Michael Toms, my partner, asking Gary, what can individuals do? What is your best advice? And Gary said something that I'll never forget. He said, the best thing you can do 
is to know and understand your watershed. And that stuck with me. And in fact, in, in California, I don't know if this is true, and you live in Colorado and Boulder and in in other places in the U.S. I don't know if they do it. But in Northern California, when, you, when you're driving along, frequently you'll see a sign, you are entering the Russian River watershed. Right. And it's so exciting to see that because it's not a county boundary and it's not a state boundary or country boundary. It's the watershed that you're entering in a new ecological region. Can you say something about that? Sure. It's a it it's a fundamentally different way of thinking and of perceiving one's place in the world to place yourself by the contours of the land rather than by the streets or landmarks that humans have built. Uh, it's, it, in, a very, in a very deep way, it roots you in the land. And um, I remember when that happened for me, I was driving along Highway 13 in the Oakland Hills, and I, my car descended into a valley and was rising up again the next hill, and it suddenly occurred to me that the, cr- the small crevice I was going through, the small valley, had been created by water. Now, I've been a hiker my whole life, you know. I've gone through across creeks. I've gone up and down hills. But it had never truly dawned on me that at the bottom of every hill lies water. Water is running. And water has created the landscape. Um, so when, you, when, when we locate ourselves according to the land, according to the way the water runs in a watershed, or according to the way the hills are laid out. I think you make peace with the land in a way that we haven't been living in peace with the land. Vine Deloria, the, um, the Sioux theologian, used to say, it consecrates the land to make peace with it in this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we often don't think about that. We often cover over creeks with uh, roads, with uh, highways, and, and underneath it, then the, this river is having to survive underneath all of that. So um, let's, let's talk about a little bit about your relationship with Sapphire. Uh, this was, you devoted some time to this just wonderful dog that came to you in a very surprising way. So talk about Sapphire and your relationship and what she taught you. Sapphire came to me, came to me by way of my landlady um, who rescued her from a, a rescue from a pound and brought her home. And my landlady had been wanting me to get a dog so that her dog could have company. But I was a poor graduate student, and I didn't have money, and what do you do if a dog has an emergency, and, you know, they take money and care. But um, as long as the dog was there, and I was helping to try to find a home for her, I thought, well, let me take her to the park and take her on a walk. She needs exercise. So I... uh, got my car ready for her to um, jump into, and I had a little hatchback at the time, and I opened the hatch, and I figured she'd jump right in the hatch. Well, no. Sapphire saw the open passenger side door, and she climbed up in the passenger seat, sat upright, looking out the windshield, and looking very pleased with herself. So, 
After that, I bought her a doggy seat belt, and she rode in the front seat. Um, Sapphire, what did Sapphire teach me? I think she taught me relationship. She taught me what it feels like to live with a creature um, that you care about equally with each other. You care equally about each other. You um, go on adventures together. She taught me what intimacy feels like over time. We shared about a decade together. And uh, it was, uh, she was a very special guide and companion. You, you actually learned to uh, do, speak with animals. You, you, you were worried about her at some point. I don't remember the detail, but you contacted someone named Winterhawk. And it was, so to describe that and how you also developed this capacity. So Sapphire had a bad habit uh, from the start, what I thought was a bad habit of running away when I left her off leash. And I was afraid she would uh, get hit uh, on a road. And so I had to keep her on leash. Um, so I didn't know how to address this problem. Sapphire didn't respond. I would talk sternly to sit her down and talk sternly to her after she came back from one of her off-leash runs, unauthorized off-leash runs. And she would only look away. It was like, don't talk to me even in a quiet, stern tone of voice. I don't pay attention to that kind of voice. So I called Winterhawk, who was an animal communicator, and asked her to talk to Sapphire and find out how we could deal with this problem. The upshot was that Sapphire really needed to run off-leash. She, uh, according to Winterhawk, uh, Sapphire saw herself as wolf, and she wanted to be wolf, and she needed to be wolf. And I came to respect that as one of her primal needs, and so I would only let her off leash now and then in a very safe place. Um, But after that, uh, I was so intrigued by the process of... um, Winterhawk explained that she sent pictures to the animals and that animals uh, talked back in pictures, could receive the pictures, the images, and send them back. And uh, I began practicing that too. Um, Now we have people like Temple Grandin saying that animals think in pictures. So um, I I think it's a very powerful way to communicate. And if uh, uh, I often use it, I try it. I find that um, dogs and cats, um, some are more skilled at it, just like, like some humans are more skilled at certain forms of communication than other humans. Um, But by the time Sapphire was um, halfway through her life, she and I had kind of taught each other how to do this. So it it was a very close and intimate connection that we could enjoy. So it it was a real connection of deep listening, both to one another, I guess, uh, in this case, rather than controlling that's right. Um, Sapphire taught me pretty quickly that she was not interested in being controlled. Um, she was not interested in me being in charge. She wanted to be equals. She wanted to um, have certain say in her how her life went. She also wanted to look after me 
as I was looking after her. So it was a relationship uh, that had many elements of partnership in it. Uh, that's as close to a partner as I've had in the animal world. And she really taught you a kind of intimacy, didn't she? She did. We looked after one another. We played together. We worked together. Oh, with real respect. It was definitely a relationship of respect, yes. And uh, at one point you, you talk about how she helped you experience what it's like to have a dog nose. So talk about what is, what is that experience? So I continued to wonder why she needed to run away. What was this thing? And she would go plunging off into the underbrush, you know, the bushes crackling, and she'd stay away for 20 or 30 minutes, and I would worry, but then eventually she would come back. So I decided to try to attune to her way of being and listen deeply for what she might be experiencing. So while I was in a quiet state of meditation, I brought her picture to mind. She was, I think, in the room at the time, so she was nearby. And I turned to that picture in my mind and I said, so why do you run away? What is it that makes you want to run away? And instantly... My nose was flooded with a prickly sensation as if I had just eaten a whole spoonful of wasabi. And I thought, oh my goodness, is that what it's like? But it wasn't just painful like wasabi would be painful. There was also something extremely tantalizing like the best stew you can imagine simmering on a back burner. So I thought, well, if it's that overpowering, no wonder she plunges away when, even when I don't want her to. So their, their nose and sense of smell is so much more acute than ours. So it's a whole, you open yourself up to a whole new world of, of scent. And perception, a whole different way of perceiving one's surroundings in terms of the, the sense of it was being commanded to follow this, this, this scent. Whatever she was experiencing through her nose was like a command, you must follow this. One that you cannot refuse. I'm here with Dr. Priscilla Stuckey, and she's the author of Kiss by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature. And if you'd like to know more about her work, you can go to her website, PriscillaStuckey.com. And Stuckey is spelled S-T-U-C-K-E-Y, PriscillaStuckey.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, NewDimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Thank you. 
I'm here with Dr. Priscilla Stuckey. She's the author of Kiss by a Fox. Let's talk about being kissed by a fox. I mean, that is the title of your book, and I know our listeners are curious. Kissed by a fox. Uh, let's talk about Rudy. Who is Rudy? Who is this dear fox? Rudy was a red fox who lived in a wildlife rehab uh, center in the East Bay, and I was volunteering there one winter, and I was still I was still in this difficult time of my life trying to uh, help myself feel better by helping other creatures. And um, so it was my job to give Rudy his, bring Rudy his dinner bowl. And um, Rudy was very tame. He was wary, like a good fox is wary, but he wasn't unfriendly to people. And so I thought, well, maybe I have a chance of really getting to know him. So when I brought him his dinner bowl, I would squat down on the floor, first outside his, his little enclosure, then inside. And as he got used to me, I got closer and closer to his bowl. And one night, I'm squatting about two feet away from his bowl, and um, he's padding around me and sniffing me, and suddenly he stepped directly in front of where I was crouching on the floor and stared up at me, and then he put one paw on my lower knee on the floor, and he raised himself vertically, and he stared directly into my face, up close, really up close. And I was... I was so taken aback, I couldn't move even if I had tried, but I was also trying to keep still so not to disturb what was going on, but I had no idea. I mean, foxes have needle-sharp teeth. Was this fox planning to attack? I didn't know. He opened his mouth, he stretched out his tongue, and he reached his tongue between my parted lips, and he licked the inside of my mouth for a few moments. And then he withdrew his tongue, let himself down to the floor, and went straight to his food bowl and began eating his food. And I was so shocked. I thought, I've just been French kissed by a fox. <laughs> <laughs> and then I thought, I want to spit really hard, really fast, <laughs> because it was rather gritty. <laughs> his tongue felt gritty. Uh, he left a little bit of grit behind because uh -huh. he'd been rooting around in the earth and, uh -huh. and who knows uh -huh. what. Yeah. <laughs> but I just watched in stunned silence for a few moments and then he was still eating, so I just left him to his dinner and walked away. And after that night, any time I came into his pen and brought him his dinner bowl, he treated me the same way. He said hello in the same way. Extraordinary. And I thought, isn't this ama amazing? Um, my time at the center ended, ended years past, and I'm in the living room of a friend, and he, this friend has a book on wildlife tracking, and I open up the book, and I turn to the chapter on foxes, and there I see that Rudy is doing something a little bit different from what I expected, that when fox kits are newly weaned, and they can't di really digest food yet, but they're off milk, um, the adults go out and hunt and leave them in the den. And when the adults return with food, the kits crowd around, crowd around the adults and they lick the adults' mouths to try to find out what's for dinner. And that stimulates the adults to regurgitate the partially digested food. So that's the way the young kits have of receiving partially digested food. So I came to realize Rudy wasn't actually kissing me. He was checking the menu. <laughs> Checking the menu. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. There is a paradox about 
in these wildlife centers, rehab centers, uh, where, like for Rudy, because it was California and Red Fox is not indigenous, there's a mandate that's a, a very sad mandate. And can you talk about that? Yes. Um, animals that are not native to the... Because now we believe and uh, science scientists believe and ecologists believe in preserving and protecting the native ecosystems, when there are animals that are not native to the ecosystem, they are not allowed to be released back into the wild. Um, or at least that's the way this center uh, interpreted the law. I am not act- actually sure of the exact wording of the law. Um, so Rudy was there at the center because he couldn't be released um, and because he had had a lot of human contact. But even other creatures who were not native to California, if they came into the center, they were euthanized rather than being fed or raised to adulthood. And that's always very sad because we... But we have tampered with the natural order of things that have, has lasted for hundreds, thousands of years, and and then it, it does something to the whole ecosystem. It's a very thorny issue, and there is a lot of disagreement about this issue. And uh, attitudes are shifting, I think, in the 15 years since Rudy and I knew each other. I think there is more... Um, thinking that perhaps hybrid ecosystems of native and non-native animals and plants, perhaps that can work. And perhaps we don't have to think about, in such purest terms, about uh, restoring original uh, ecosystems. But there is a great deal of uh, disagreement on this, and um, a lot of fighting is still among humans is going on. Well, I can remember us doing an interview some years ago, specifically uh, with Terry Tempest Williams, and we've done several interviews with her. But in one particular one, she was talking about prairie dogs, and I remember a story that she told about how I believe it was the BLM Bureau of Land Management had said, okay, we're going to take all the prairie dogs out of this district. I, I believe it might have been in northern New Mexico. I'm, I'm not sure about the details. but um, And the, the native peoples there, the indigenous peoples there, warned them not to do this, that this was not a good idea. Mm-hmm. But they did it anyway. And, of course, then... Then all the digging and all the the turning of the earth that the prairie dogs did was no longer available to the land. The land turned into a hard pan, and now all the water that the little bit of water that would come mm-hmm. would just run off and and then take soil with it and and just just devastate the landscape. Mm-hmm. Where I live in Boulder, Colorado, prairie dogs are an important part of the native landscape. And if prairie dogs weren't there, you wouldn't have raptors, which people love to watch. You wouldn't have, they're, they're a keystone species because they become food for a lot of other creatures. And if you take a whole species out of this closely interlinked 
community of eaters and being eaten. It changes the character of the whole thing. And it's a very serious, uh, it's a very serious decision to do that. And I uh, tend to fall on the side of saying we need to preserve the naturally occurring ecosystems um, but I, uh, as I say, there's a lot of disagreement about yes, that. Yes, yes. Well, that takes me then to the idea of of um, potlatch and and another kind of economic system. Maybe uh, some call it reciprocal generosity. Uh, so can you say something about this kind of symmetric generosity? Well. As I mentioned, in our present economic system, we have incentives for accumulating wealth. But there have been other peoples uh, in other places, and the Northwest Indian, the Indians of Northwest North America are one example of people who arranged their economic lives not around accumulation, but around the, the rhythm of accumulating and then giving away, accumulating and then giving away. So they worked together to, uh, in houses to accumulate resources and then would hold a big potlatch where it became their obligation to give gifts to everyone who attended to provide all the food. And if you look at that from an economic perspective, and there is a, um, an economist by the name of Ron Trosper, whom I discuss in the book, uh, analyzes this from an economic perspective, that it's incentives for generosity. It's incentives that, that allow a sustainable system because they preserve the rhythm of receiving and giving, receiving and giving. And that's really the only kind of sustainable economic system there is. And you mention in your book about then there's a, a belief that ownership uh, means ownership of property rather than meaning privilege. It means responsibility. That's a very different viewpoint. We talk a lot about rights in this country, but with every right comes a responsibility. So in a sense, we... Uh, emphasize the taking in part of life, and we de-emphasize the giving out part of life. And those two always have to go in synchrony. It's a cycle. Everything that is taken in is given out. If you think about your breath, you breathe in, you breathe out. A watershed breathes in and breathes out. Um, and every part of our lives is going to have to enact that same rhythm. And when you think about it in the big sense of it, the taking in of the Earth's resources, the gathering up of Earth's resources without giving back, they'll run out. And that's what we're seeing happen. That's right. That's right. Well, um, Priscilla, this has just been a marvelous conversation. We've covered a lot of ground, and I just thank you so much for being with us today on New Dimensions. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Priscilla Stuckey, and she's the author of Kissed by a Fox and Other Stories of Friendship in Nature. And if you'd like to know more about her work and look up her website, her website is priscillastuckey.com. And she spells her name Stuckey, S-T-U-C-K-E-Y, Priscilla Stuckey 
www.newdimensionsradio.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. My name is Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3463. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. This program was recorded at Strawberry Hill Productions, a full-service podcast production studio in Novato, California. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions, whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.